Our Father, we thankful again tonight for the preserving work of the Holy Spirit down through history to preserve text of Scripture that we today can view your Word. We thank you for the freedom that we enjoy at this time in this country so that we can come together around the Word in peace and we can have time to prepare for the harder times uh, by looking to you and your grace and the salvation that you offer to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Tonight we're going to continue, and there is no handout tonight uh, because we've gotten ahead. Uh, the class has gone slower than the handouts. So um, you have the last handout um, that you got last week. That completes part three. The only thing that would be missing from part three is a section that deals with chronology. And right now, I'm not really prepared to deal with that. I have, um, I'm in communication with a friend of mine I went to seminary with who, for over the years, has done archaeological digs and uh, had recently worked um, with, a, with the man who really comes from Pennsylvania, um, Brian Wood. And Brian Wood is a fellow who... Um, has done a lot of work at Jericho with the walls. And the problem has been the dating of the walls and how you date Jericho controls the chronology. And so uh, rather than drop some half-baked stuff out, I, I just want to watch what happens to this debate as, as they start to work with this material. Um, so, so we're not going to do that. So the notes that you have finish off in effect part three. And next week we'll be handing out the first set of notes on where we would have started had we started on time um, this fall. We're going to be still part four, where we move uh, from Solomon to the end of the Old Testament. And uh, we'll get into some different kind of history for that. But tonight, I'd like to go back and review once again, um, coming from the big picture down to the little picture, uh, so we put David in perspective and we get this period of history firmly in our grasp. Um, one of the things that David, David centers in theologically is that it's a revelation of what messianic leadership looks like. And it clashes with the world's idea of leadership. That's the big picture that's going on. We have a lot of stories in David. We've known them from Sunday school and so on. But what we want to do is think back through the series of contrasts that we've looked at. We started off with Abraham. And this is 2000 B.C. At that point, we have, in this series that we've been working on for a year, we have a division occur in that with the revelation of Abraham in Genesis 12, God reveals the fact that he has an election. He has justification. That he chooses out from among the human race a subgroup with which to work and through whom he will reveal his word. So that act, that revelation that occurs in 2000 B.C. contrasts with the pagan view of history. And in the pagan view of history, you have finally chance. 
because there's no sovereign personal God. So every unbelieving view of history at bottom, whether they talk about gods and goddesses or this or that, ultimately they have no intelligent plan. History is not run intelligently. There is no rational plan. There's no rhyme and reason to history. And what, why this is not just theoretical is very practical. Because if the, there's no meaning and no reason to the whole, there can't be any meaning and reason to your life or mine. And the things that happen in our lives are just random chance happenings. That's the fallout of that position. So either you have to go with the idea that there's ultimately no meaning or ultimately there is. And that's what the Bible insists, that there's a personal God who created history, who elects, that is, he has a plan of what he is going to do, Nothing is going to stop him from executing that plan and that when we come to him as fallen creatures, he perfectly justifies us because we can't be in covenant with him, you remember, unless we have share his righteousness. Then after Abraham, we said there was the Exodus. And this was about, say, 1500, just for, actually it's 1440, but just to make everything look nice. Uh, just think of it as 1500. And at that point, we have God revealing himself as the one who judges and saves. The one who disturbs history. Every one of these themes we've looked at is a disturbance relative to civilization at large. Every one of these actions cuts across the grain of society. Every time we see an event in the scriptures, we have God interfering with what man wants naturally to do. So at this point, in 1500 B.C., we have a, a, a tremendous thing. This is the only time in history that you ever had a revolution from top to bottom in a society and the deliverance of a remnant, a minority, without an army. Devoid of all politics, devoid of all military. It is an amazing event, the Exodus utterly without precedent. No politics, no militaries involved. It was sheerly a miraculous intervention and a disturbance by God. In contrast to that, what man tries to do is he tries to build his babbles and he has a system of works and he has a system of some sort of government solution to the problem or something else. That's the pagan view. In other words, we deal with chaos by trying to impose an order on the chaos. We try to keep the marbles in place. Then we came after the Exodus to Mount Sinai. And we said at Mount Sinai, again 1500, we have there God revealing the basis of law. That man doesn't make law, God makes law. And when we study in school, there are three branches to the government, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. Isn't it instructive to observe which of those three branches of government is missing in the Old Testament? We have the executive branch, the elders of the nation. We have the judicial branch, the courts. Where's the legislature? Now, this is a question we needed to ask. We asked it last year, and we just review now. There is a significant question. Why is the legislature function of government missing? in the Bible? Well, the answer is because God makes a law. Man doesn't make the law. 
So this gives you insight into which of the three branches of government is most closely related to God himself. Why is that? Let's think about that. When we make a law, supposedly we're trying to make a law that's just. We're trying to run society in an orderly and just fashion. But in order to design a law, what do you have to have in your head? An idea of a standard of right and wrong. Where do you get the standard from? And so that issue forces us back to where do the standards come from? And when God reveals that he is the standard, and then in the, over and against that concept, we have uh, man's law. And here it's God's law. Man's attempt at manufacturing good, the standards of good and evil. And of course, this is the result of the fall. Because at the fall, what was the temptation? You shall be as gods, knowing both good and evil. In other words, the temptation is to become the determinor of good and evil. Then after that, we went and we saw the result of that, which was the conquest and settlement era. And this lasted from 1500 B.C. on down to the time of the judges, about, uh, let's put 1100. Well, I'll just make everything work out nice in this chart. 1500 to 1000, five centuries. It ended in a disaster in the book of Judges nation totally lost its character. Everything fell apart. We had the nation completely run out of gas. So there was nothing that was happening here. But the important point in this was the Holy War. And it's this section of the Bible that critics love to attack us. They love to criticize the Christians. How can you Christians believe in a God who would order the genocide, genocidal war, against an innocent group of people in the, in the land. And this has been traditionally one of the vulnerable points in the Christian gospel. And sometimes Christians, we, we get intimidated and we start backing up and, and, and apologizing for it. Well, there's something wrong if we have to apologize for something our God did. Either we don't get it or we lack faith or there's something wrong Something doesn't smell right about that approach. So, what did we say was the answer to that? What we said was the answer was we take it even further. We say, why do you have to have holy war? And we said that is related to the fact that in history, according to the Bible, see, this is how you can turn this criticism around and use it back against the person who's doing the argument. Because... The criticism is saying that God is evil to have cruelty in the scriptures. We're going to see more of it with David. Why holy war again? What's the rationale for holy war biblically? What's our answer? The answer is, it goes back to the problem of evil itself. There are only two views about good and evil. Either you have to believe that good and evil are normal, they coexist everywhere, forever, have always been with us, always will be with us. For example, in the modern theory of evolution, creation comes about by the struggle of good and evil, survival of the fittest, the death of the weak. In other words, death and evil and struggle become the source of good. 
So good and evil are always vying and competing with one another over the span of time. Always have, always will. There's no end to suffering. There's no end to death. Every generation will forever experience it. Now, people don't like to express it this way, like I'm doing it. But tell me, what other answer is there? If you don't accept the top view, where we have a point in time where there was a fall and a beginning of evil, and you don't accept the fact that at the end there's going to be a judgment and a separation of good and evil, such that evil is bracketed on the left and on the right side of the chart, then you, then you have unlimited evil. I mean, either evil is limited or it isn't. And so, in the Christian position, evil is limited and its days are numbered. So now, what's the justification for holy war and the extermination of a so-called innocent group of people? Well, number one is they're not innocent. Never has been a group of innocent people. All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us are intruders in God's universe. The grass we walk on is His grass, His sign of ownership. And we transgress His... This is His universe. With all due apologies to the Sierra Club, this earth is God's earth. It's not mother's. It's God's earth. He owns it, and He will renovate it. And we have contaminated it. In that, the ecologist is correct, but we've contaminated it in a way far more radical than the most radical ecologists. They're worried about throwing garbage out on the highway and giving ozone-level emissions in the cities. We, biblically, are concerned with the fact that through our transgression in our father Adam and mother Eve, we brought into existence all death everywhere in the universe. So we're not talking about Coke bottles along the interstate. We're not talking just about ozone levels. We are talking about the utter, complete contamination of the biological universe all the way down to the molecular level. That's how radical we have wrecked the environment. And we have wrecked it in such a radical way the only way it can be resolved is through a recreation, which the Bible promises. Now, this is our view. This is how we come out as biblical Christians. This is our view. This is the, this is the non-Christian's view. And there are no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no difference. That's it. There's the one or it's the other. And every person you're going to talk to is walking in one area or they're walking in another area. One or two. Now let's look at why we have holy war and cruelty and extermination in the Old Testament conquest and settlement period. The reason is that God reveals on a small scale over a small domain at one part on the continent of where Asia, Africa, and Europe come together. He's chosen that form of real estate to reveal what his final judgment is going to look like. So, the bad news about the cruelty in the Old Testament is the good news that good and evil will be separated. And if it were not for the cruelty, and if it were not for that bloody mess and that judgment in the Old Testament, we wouldn't have anything but a sweet dream 
that there was going to ever be any serious separation between good and evil. It is only that that gives us the assurance because when Jesus comes back, his garments, they say, will be covered with blood in the book of Revelation. Why? Because there's war. People are dying. There is a holy war to beat all holy wars. There is an eternal separation. The day of grace has come to an end. The day of grace is only between these two periods of time. There was no grace before the fall. There was no need for it. And there can't be any grace after the separation. Because once good and evil have been separated, there's no transition across the boundaries. So that's the background for why there's cruelty and judgment in the scriptures. It is part and parcel of the Bible's answer to the whole good and evil question. You can't have it both ways. See, we, we want to really have it both ways. Here's, here's how we like to have it both ways. We want to have relief from some evil. The problem is the cry to have relief from suffering, death, and evil isn't radical enough because if it were really a cry to end good and evil and uh, end suffering and death and sorrow and sickness, what about this? What about me? What about my flesh? In asking for the removal of good, of evil and death and suffering, aren't I also asking for the removal of my own sin, my own flesh? My own corruption? Of course, if you really believe in an absolute request. But you see, when you, get, you start pushing that request for relief to its logical conclusion, then people back off. Oh, we don't want quite that much relief, say. Well, the Bible says, sorry, you can't have it both ways. God is allowing a time of grace, of the coexistence of good and evil, so we have time to grow in Christ. Now, if we're dissatisfied with his letting good and evil coexist, the only other answer we got is this. Now, which way do we want it? We have it here with sickness that will be in a, in a zone, or we get rid of all the sickness and death and sorrow and go to this. But if we go to this, there's no salvation. So, death and sorrow and suffering is the corollary of grace. Maybe you haven't thought about it that way before. But this is another way of coming at it. It is the corollary of God being gracious. Either he is gracious and there is sorrow and death. Or he's judgmental and pure and there's no suffering and death anymore. One or the other. But what we want is kind of mix and match. We want to get rid of the evil, but we want the continuing grace to do our own evil. So, those are the, that's the background. And we've come, of course, now, we've come in this last few weeks, we've come now to the last of these events, which is where God reveals what a messianic leader looks like. And this is about 1000 B.C. And in this case, we see David as the man of faith who operates by grace over against Saul and all other pagan imitators who act by works and self-effort. And that's why in, this, in these notes, I took some careful quotes from the Assyrian kings and the Egyptian pharaohs so you could see how men of David's day acted. 
and set that over against how David acted. And we came to the conclusion that David um, was given a covenant last time in pages 107 and 108 of the notes, 2 Samuel 7. And during that period of time, we have uh, David settling down. Now let's look at the Davidic covenant again just to review a little bit because this sets up the structure for the rest of the Old Testament and in fact prepares us for the new. This is the Davidic covenant. Remember, there are various covenants in Scripture. Remember, we saw the Abrahamic covenant, we saw the Sinaitic covenant, uh, and under the Sinaitic covenant, there's something called a Palestinian covenant, which we get into later. But Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, and a worldwide blessing. The Sinaitic covenant was a conditional covenant given to the nation Israel on an if-then basis. The Abrahamic covenant was absolute, unconditional, the Palestinian was. Now the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant promises that the messianic leadership will perpetuate into eternity future. There never will be a time when the Davidic dynasty does not control not only planet Earth, but ultimately the universe. David's seed will reign. It's not the Martians that are going to have the last word. It's not some alien from galaxy XYZ. Ironically, it turns out that the universe is going to be run by David's seed. So the Davidic covenant is quite radical in that it defines human leadership, the, the highest office of human leadership. And the Davidic covenant, therefore, shapes history. And this is why... David's covenant will be eternal. It's an eternal dynasty rooted in the very plan of God. And so Jesus traces his lineage to David. Now all this is background to what happens next. And this story, the David story, we're going to look at some material tonight to complete it because next week we're going to go to the application of this truth in matters of Christian sanctification, spiritual growth, confession of sin, and those kinds of things that we're all involved in. But lest those things become principles and become abstracts, abstractions and you don't have any content in your mind to visualize, we want to go through some of these rich stories hoping that as we go through these stories, that our memories will become embedded with them and we can, in our moments of crisis, and our moments of, of, of troubles, we can sit down and recall, wait a minute, what, what did God do with David? Let me think through this thing. Here I am and here's David. Now, how did God deal in David's situation? Well, how is he going to deal in my situation? And then the Holy Spirit can resurrect these memories and of these stories, and, and they'll all be connected. So, the story begins in 2 Samuel 7. We want to go back there, because that's where we left off with the covenant. If you've been reading this, you'll, you'll see that uh, 2 Samuel 7 terminates the covenant. The discussion ends there. And then you have a series of chapters that begin to give a record of David's reign. 
These would be the royal chronicles. In fact, there's a book called The Chronicles in the Bible. This is God's interpretation of history. Remember I said, and I've said it 35 times if I haven't said it once, that history did not start with the Greeks like you always learn in school. History started with the Old Testament. And it started with the prophets, the writing prophets. Why did it start? What was the motive behind the first history book? That's a good question. What was the motive? What was the driving force that made men write things down? Let's think about that one for a minute. What was the driving force that made men want to record historical events in the Old Testament? Why Judges? Why Samuel? Why Chronicles? These are histories. Theological histories, but they're histories. And the answer is this. Because God made a covenant. And we are measuring His behavior. What does a covenant do? You make a covenant for payments. Covenant on your car. Covenant on your house. A covenant defines the behavior of the parties to the covenant. Therefore, the Bible has God making all these covenants. Well, who's monitoring the behavior? The, the history is the unfolding of the behavior. And so these histories are organized materials, not everything that happened in, in David's life, but there's enough here so that we can start to track who's being faithful to the Davidic covenant. What does God's promise look like in the ebb and flow and chaos of history? Okay, if you turn to 2 Samuel 8, you just look at that, you can skim it real quick. It's a lot of stories of military victories and so forth. This is after the covenant, you see. Um, it says in verse 1, Now after this came out, David defeated the Philistines and he subdued them. And if you'll skip chapter 9 and go to chapter 10 for a moment, you have some more of, of the whole of the wars that David had to fight and so on. And that chapter 10 concludes in verse 19. They made peace with Israel and they served them. So the Arameans feared to help the sons of Ammon anymore. They got creamed when they tried to come in and help these people on the northeastern frontier of the nation Israel. Well, trapped between chapter 10 and chapter 8 is chapter 9. If you look at chapter 9, there's a little note to what was going on with the Davidic dynasty at this point. And it's a neat, neat word, chapter 9, verse 1. David said, Is there yet anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, how does this differ from what we read the last couple of times with Esau Haddon? What did Esau Haddon do to his rival dynastic people? He wiped them out, right? Killed them all, slaughtered them. What is David doing? Is he wiping them all out? No. He made certain promises he would be gracious. And the, these are men and women in a rival dynasty that in normal politics would have tried to do him in. This is a man who is so confident of the plan of God that he can be gracious. You see the connection? People that act like Esau Haddon are insecure, right? They're so insecure they have to destroy everything that might bother them. 
David doesn't have to do that. David has a promise of God. God will take care of the issue. So David can really be, deep down in his soul, a lot more relaxed because he's operating underneath the sovereign promise of God. And therefore, because he is secure, principle is he can show grace and he can love people. His security as a prerequisite for being relaxed enough and secure enough so that he can give to others comes about because of that rigid, dogmatic faith in the sovereign God of the Bible. And it's always true. Love can't be released out of an insecure basket. As long as I am insecure, my first concern is with my security. Not with you, not with anybody else, with me. After I decide that I'm secure, then we'll talk about you. And that's the way it is. So this is how David operates. Is there anyone left? And so on. It's a whole story in chapter 9, which we won't go into, but if those of you have read it, you've read through that story. It's a wonderful story of how he searches out um, the, the, the son of Jonathan who was crippled in his feet and so on, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth becomes part of the story here. Then the story drops and we move through the wars of chapter 10. And then we come down to chapter 11. Now, beginning in chapter 11 through chapter 20, in this chronicle of David's reign, is an interesting principle. There's a whole bunch of stories in here. A whole bunch of stories. And we want to look at the outline of these stories. Chapter 11 and chapter 12 is the famous scandal that hit David's, David's dynasty, David's reign. David's always known for this scandal. His adultery with Bathsheba. But the chapters 11 and 12 don't finish the story. Notice I said it's not just chapter 11 and 12, it's chapter 11 through chapter 20. That whole section of Samuel teaches us something about a phrase that was embedded in the Davidic contract. So let's hold a place and turn back to 2 Samuel 7 and you'll see where there was a little um, verse. 14. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. Embedded inside the fine print on the contract was the following phrase. Clause. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Now what does that say? Does it say that David is going to lose out and his dynasty is going to lose his eternal standing? No. Is his dynasty going to be secure? Yes. But one reason it's going to be secure is because God is going to take care of iniquity when it's in it. So any kind of sin in this thing is going to be punished in some way, he says, by the sons of men. That is, there's going to be other people act against who, who, David or his son Solomon or anybody else in that line. So sin will not go unpunished in, that, in this story. So from chapter 11 to chapter 20, chapter 11 and 12 deal with the sin... Chapters 13 through 20 deal with the outworking of this. So this whole clump of Scripture 
is to show chapter 7, verse 14, at work. That's what's happening. I want you to see this because we're gonna, next week we're going to draw a conclusion to all this from the Christian life. But what I want to see just tonight is that this sin story, along with its consequences, is given coverage in these chapters. But I also want you to see that this whole section of Scripture comes underneath chapter 7, verse 14. Chapter 7, verse 14 is the controlling principle over all this chaos that's going on here. There's people killed. There's people raped. There's armies that are destroyed. There's people who suffer horribly, die horrible deaths all through this section. But it is not social chaos in an ultimate sense. God is behind it all. And much of the very chaos has been shaped by 2 Samuel 7.14. That's the lesson to see here. On the surface, it looks like everything's fallen apart. But no, God said, this is the way I run my kingdom. If this happens, then that's going to follow it's predictable. And so that's what this whole section is. So let's look at some of the details of the section now. In 2 Samuel 11, after all of the, the previous military, remember I mentioned in chapter 8 and chapter 10, you have all the military campaigns and so forth. Now, what do we know from David's lifestyle from the Psalms. Normally in the Psalms, if you just hold the place, they turn to Psalm 5. We could go to many different Psalms. I give you some of them references on page 108 in the notes. But if you look at chapter 5, verse 3, what do you notice is stylistic about David in the morning? In the morning, he's up, he's praying to the Lord, and he's ready to go. Okay, now you turn over to 2 Samuel 11. Normally, in chapter 8, chapter 10, he was leading his armies into battle. But now in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11, it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. They destroyed the sons of Ammon, besieged Reba. But, says the Hebrew, David stayed in Jerusalem. Now that by itself is maybe not, it's just an observation about what was going on in his life at the time. He wasn't out there with his troops. He wasn't out there with his friends who were in battle. He was at home. Then in verse 2, he gets up from bed in the evening. Does that look like the David of the Psalms? The guy who was talking about meeting God in the morning? So right away in verses 1 and 2, we have a disturbance. This is not like David. Something's going on here. So... Uh, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get is this, is that there's a big sin coming, but it didn't happen out of the clear blue. There's a, there's a precursor to all this, and we all know this from our own life and our own experience, 
that big sins just don't happen. There's little sins that build up to the big thing. So there's stuff going on here and here, and then finally, you boom, you have a real blowout. But the blowout wasn't the first step. Something has gone on here in verses 1 and 2. So in verse 2, there's an observation about what... It's a very graphic picture. David arose from his bed. He walked around the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman's very beautiful in appearance. So David sent and inquired about the woman, and we know the story. But there's some things to observe about verse 2. Some questions to ask the text. Besides the fact that he's walking around having just got up in the afternoon when he normally gets up in the morning, he's looking down from the roof. This woman is out here without her clothes on taking a bath in the pool with roofs higher than the pool so people can look at her. This is not to, to blame, not to avoid blame for David, but it's just to say Bathsheba does not come across in Scripture as the smartest woman who ever lived. In fact, there are references elsewhere in Kings where she gets so screwed up in the politics of the palace that Nathan has to come to her and explain, Honey, if you don't act this way, you're going to lose your son. Woohoo! Are you there? So, this, she's kind of slow. See, David had six or seven other wives. One was a very brilliant woman by the name of Abigail. But, but the te and by the way, when he meets Abigail, the emphasis, Christian artists have always had the problem that what do these guys and girls look like? There's very little evidence in the text of even what Jesus looks like. The only idea we have what Jesus looks like is from a, from a mosaic that was in an early Christian church that shows him, by the way, with short hair, not like Holman Hunt's picture, the hippie left over from the 60s. But in, in, the, in this case, it was the mosaic, short hair, because Roman men wore short hair, not long hair. The reason was because in long hair, you can grab it and cut their throat. So it wasn't quite a, it was a security issue. You don't have a big pigtail to grab onto. So Roman soldiers did not have long hair. And Jesus apparently didn't have long hair. And the fact of well, the matter was that the, the men who did have a long hair, and they did it as unto the Lord, was the Nazaritic vow. And the fact of the matter was that this was unusual. So we at least know that physical feature about men. But that's all. And so the scriptures just leave us kind of, you know, to our imaginations. What do these people look like? And... It's unusual, therefore, when in verse 2, the prophet who's writing the scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit stops to inject this material. When you read the Bible and you question the text, like if you're in precepts uh, Bible class or a Bible study fellowship or something, you know, they always tell you to look at the text and ask questions of the text. And this is a question you always ought to remember. That very rarely in the Bible do you ever have physical descriptions of people. We saw it once before in this series, remember? When Saul comes on the scene, there's a physical description of what he looks like. He's very tall. And that's used later on in the story to let you understand about this man. Well, this is here to let us understand what's going on. David's not so much interested in who the woman is. He's interested that here she is, a woman without her clothes on, bathing. 
There's even intimations based on the text, and this is a debated point among scholars, based on verse 4 and where she said purified herself from her uncleanness, that she was involved in some of the Levitical um, bathing for menstruation. So, if that's so, and it was a funny kind of bathing to be doing out in public. So, it's not quite the best situation. So, David gets involved, and then the tragedy unfolds from one worse thing to another. First of all, in verse 4, and we could spend a lot of time if we were in the text, verse by verse on this, but God worked it out so she was fertile at the point where he committed adultery, so she conceived. Now, this is the amazing thing how God works. What our view of sin is, because it comes from rebellion, is that everything's out of control. And yet, here's one of those ironic things that, the, that, that here this woman gets pregnant right in the middle of all this thing, and this is going to be one of the sons of David who's going to die. Four sons are going to pay for their father's sin. Four of them are going to die. And this man's going to die. And yet, involved in this sin also is the woman who becomes part of the messianic line, and she bears, not Abigail, not the other six women, one of his wives is Michal, and we know she's never going to bear anything. So, all these women who were, could have borne the seed of the Messiah aren't. Is this woman of all things. And you say, for crying out loud, why does God do this in history? In fact, the women that show up in Jesus' genealogies, most of them, there's a debate about Bathsheba, but they're Gentiles in a Jewish Messiah's line. I wonder what God's saying about that. Okay, so she gets pregnant. Now he's got a problem with her husband. So now he comes in in verse 6, and he arranges, he tries to get her husband to go home and have relations with his wife, then he can blame the baby on the husband. And that doesn't work out because Uriah has integrity. So he knocks off Uriah. So this is great. David's really scoring here. Here's a guy that built his army out of men who were losers. Remember the cave of Dullam? Carefully spent years building a tremendous officer corps the thing people don't understand about military is that you don't build an army overnight. It takes years to build military leadership. That's what's so frightening about what we see in the military today. In this spring, 100 Air Force pilots, captain and above, said, we've had it. We're out of here. One of them was America's top gun. Left the service. Forget. I'm not going to put up with this stuff anymore. Hundred guys walked out the door. You know how much million dollars with each one of those? Four and a half million bucks worth of training. Every one of those. Multiply that by a hundred. And where are they going to go? They'll go fly airlines. And why are they going to do that? Because they don't want to be deployed in every country except four. We have never had more military deployments in war than we have today. Men are away from their homes and their wives eight to nine months out of the year and their families have had it and that's enough and that's it. So either they get divorced or they get a job where they can be at home. And that's it. So that's what's happening today. And we're going to pay a price because it's going to take us decades to rebuild what we're losing right now. Hemorrhaging. 
And David, at this point, is losing one of his finest officers, Uriah. So here's a guy, and this is what sin does. This is what sin does to us. He wrecks one of his key military officers by giving a very stupid and deliberately sneaky order to the commander to get this guy out in the heat of the battle somewhere where he can become a casualty. Get rid of him. And so it goes. Now the scriptures present in chapter 12 one of the classic Bible passages on counseling. Very interesting passage. God's out here. And the problem is that we flee. We're going this way. Now, the problem is we want to go, we should be going this way. But we're going this way instead. We're going away from God. And the problem is, how do you deal with that? Well, Nathan has a neat approach. Here's the prophet of God, walks in, and he knows very well two things. First of all, a general observation about this text. In no other country on earth would you have ever had a lay person walk in and chew out the king. You'd never have seen this. You wouldn't have somebody going to Pharaoh and telling him he'd sinned. That would have been about two minutes and that would have been the end of his life. Or you wouldn't have had someone walk into Esau Haddon. Syrians had a neat way of killing you. They'd stake you down to the ground and they'd peel your skin off until you died. So, these were the nice guys in the ancient world. So now, here's David, and a guy walks in. What's the difference? What makes the difference? Is this disrespectful to the king? No, it isn't. Nathan walks in because he's a man under the umbrella of the Word of God, and David's under the umbrella of the Word of God. There's an absolute over both of them, and that provides the forum for discussion. So Nathan comes in. The second thing to notice is he uses an indirect approach. He tells a story. He comes in obliquely, because had he come barreling in straight on, David's defenses would have been up. And you can see that because you remember what happened when Samuel went up to Saul and said, Saul, what's going on here? Oh, well, I'm, I just brought these up. I mean, I'm going to have a big contribution. I'm going to improve your books. Wait till you put all this booty on your accounting sheets. See, I always got an excuse. So, David is going to come in. Uh, Nathan's going to come in to David and he's going to come around. And, of course, those of you who read the story, you know that he tells a story about the ewe lamb. And then, in the, one of the most ironically powerful passages of Scripture, verse 5, David's anger burned greatly against the man in this story. And he said, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb. How many fold? Fourfold. And how many sons is David going to lose? He's going to lose four of them. Let's watch. Out of his mouth, in this moment of anger, he pronounces his own sentence. This is powerful drama. It is how carefully God superintends every little detail. Nathan said to David, You're the man, and thus saith the Lord God of Israel, 
It is I who anointed you king over Israel. I was the one who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives to your care. That's the harem, Saul's harem. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that had been little, I would have added to you many more things like these. And now, interestingly, in verse 1, here's the, the depth psychology of sin. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? You notice it isn't what it doesn't say. Why did you do that naughty thing? Why did you kill one of your officers? Why did you commit adultery with this woman? Now, that's all there. But what we want to look at is, the first point is lack of thankfulness to the Lord. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in His sight? And then he convicts him and tells him what he did. Now, verse 10, the sword will never depart from your house because you despise me. You've taken the, wire, uh, the wife of Uriah. Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. And that's the story of his harem being taken over by his sons. However, because of this deed, you have given occasion, the enemies of the Lord blessing, the child that is born to you will surely die. So, number one, in verse 19 of chapter 12, you'll see, David saw his servants whispering together, David perceived the child was dead. So here's number one child. We don't know his name. We'll call him X. He's dead. That's chapter 12, verse 19. Now let's watch the dramas unfold. We have all the stories and so on. But um, if you turn over to, I think it's 1328, Amnon, one of of David's sons by one of his wives. And notice what starts it. The first child is the product of fornication. The second guy dies because he raped the sister of one of the other brothers. You see how it just kind of a pattern that repeats? What do we say? It's sex and murder. Sex and murder. Okay? So, God, you know, it's, he's teaching this. So, in, in, uh, in chapter 13, verse 28, Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See, when Amnon's heart is married with wine, and when I say to you, strike him, Put him to death. Don't fear. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom commanded. And so, number two dies. That's chapter 13, verse 28. Let's go for number three. Let's turn over to chapter 18, verse 14.
Uh, let's go up to 9. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under a thick branch of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, so he's left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule kept going. Certain man saw. I mean, this says something humorous and pathetic about these stories. You have to catch it. Hey, scholars say that this is some of the most magnificent narrative ever written in human history. It's not just the intrigue of a, of a dynasty, but it has all these neat little events going on. But you have to read the events, not like we usually learn them in Sunday school. It's just isolated things. You want to see the isolated things as part of this ongoing, magnificent drama of the dynasty. So here he got, now here he is, hanging there in a the tree. And a certain man saw it and he said, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Now Joab is the commander-in-chief of David's armies. So Joab said to the man who told him, Now, I, now behold, you saw him? Why then you don't strike him there on the ground? And I would have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. And the man said to Joab, Even if I should receive a thousand pieces of silver, man, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Protect me, the younger Absalom. See, David was sentimental toward his sons. Even though Absalom had run a revolution against him, had taken over his harem, David was trying to exercise grace toward Absalom. Now, otherwise, if I had done treachery against his life, then you would have stood aloof. Joab said, I won't waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. So number three dies. This is chapter 18, verse 14. Now number four. The fourth son. Let's turn to 1 Kings chapter 2. This is after David's death. And um, by the way, this is also the chapter where uh, in verse 13 of this 1 Kings 2, this is where Bathsheba shows up again in all of her glory. Um, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. And she said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. And then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, go ahead and speak. You know that the kingdom was mine and that all Israel expected me to be king. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's, for it was his from the Lord. And now I am making one request of you. Don't refuse me. And she said, Speak. Please speak to Solomon, for he will not refuse you, that he may give me Abishag the Shunammite as wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I'll speak to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak for Adonijah. And the king rose to meet her, bowed before her, sat on the throne, and so on. And she said, I am making one small request of you, and do not refuse me. And the king said, Ask, my mother, for I will not refuse you. And so she said, Let Abishag the Shunammite be given to Adonijah, your brother's wife. Now, you see, the, this looks like it's a very innocent request. But see, Bathsheba, again, she's not too quick in the wit. What's happening here is that this, this Adonijah wants a claim on the throne. The woman he wants to marry is part of the harem. So by asking for her hand, this is more than just a marriage deal going here. This is a political statement. And Bathsheba, you know, she's just walking along. I mean, she's looking for her son. She doesn't think about this. And she's getting herself in some messy waters here. So in verse 24, 
Therefore, as the Lord lives, who has established me and set me, this is Solomon speaking, on the throne of David my father, who has made me a house as he promised, Adonijah will be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he fell upon him, so he died. So now in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 24, we have number 4. 2 Kings 2, 24. Adonijah. We have four sons that die, all listed in the fine print because of 2 Samuel 7.14. What is the controlling verse that controls this under God's sovereign plan? God said, I will be a father and be a son and I will discipline this dynasty. I will preserve the dynasty. It will be eternally secure. But... I can be very nasty about disciplining it. Now, this, has, this is loaded with all kinds of truth for Christian sanctification. But I want you to just get tonight just this picture of what's going on with this dynasty and all these, this chaos of history that's caused by David. Now, if you look in the notes, on page 108, 109, after David's time, oh, before we get to the end, end point here, on page 109, you'll see I tried to do another one of those quotes. I put those quotes in there, people, because I find them useful in my head to ask myself, where is the Bible unique over against this, the world? Where's, where's the real contrast going on? Now, David confessed his sin. By the way, here are the Psalms to remember. Psalm 32 and Psalm 38. Those are three penitential Psalms. And they were written by David during this time. Psalm 51, we'll get into later, but Psalm 51 is a classic penitential Psalm. It's been used down through church history for centuries. It's the story of David's confession of his sin and what he did with it. David recognized that he had sinned. But now on page 109, let me show you just briefly what the pagan world was doing. Nowhere else in the ancient world could the king be so censured, especially for a moral wrong, as David was. And certainly nowhere else in the world would it be so publicly condemned as in the royal record of 2 Samuel. Outside of Israel and her law, there was no developed sense of sin. Note this very carefully. Outside of Israel, historically, there was no developed sense of sin. Which tells you then, what did Israel have that the Assyrians and the Egyptians didn't have in their national life? What do these nations not have? The law. Where does the sense of sin come from? The law. Does law have a function? You bet it does. And here's an illustration. The Egyptian viewed his misdeeds not as sins, but as aberrations. It is especially significant that the Egyptians never showed any trace of feeling unworthy of divine mercy. You can read their poetry. You can get it out of the library. For he who errs is not a sinner, but a fool. 
And his conversion to a better way of life does not require repentance, but better understanding. The theme of God's wrath is practically unknown in Egyptian literature. For the Egyptian in his aberrations is not a sinner whom God rejects, but an ignorant man who is disciplined and corrected. See the difference? We want to hone in on that difference. Remember I said when David is talking about, when God talks to David, why have you despised me? Why? It's ultimately with me that you have to bond. It's not Bathsheba and Uriah, ultimately. It's with me. That's the nature of sin. It's not with society. It's not what the jailer is going to do. It's not what the court system is going to do. It's with me. Let's conclude tonight by going to Psalm 50. And there's a verse in Psalm 50 that, that shows this. As David writes, in Psalm 51, as David writes this psalm, and by the way, you'll notice if you're unfamiliar with the psalms, many of them have titles, and for years people thought these titles were, you know, they've been treated like they were something put in there by the publishers. Well, that's not true. If you look at the Hebrew text, verse 1 of Psalm 51 is not our verse 1. Verse 1 of Psalm 51 in the original Hebrew text is for the choir director, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba. That's verse 1. Verse 2 is our verse 1. So, unfortunately, in our English translations, we've kind of butchered the headings out. But the headings are part of the Hebrew text. That was in there originally. So, here's David confessing his sin. He's talking about, wash me thoroughly and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Now look at verse 4. Our verse 4. Now, how can you reconcile what he's saying here with what happened? Doesn't this look like he's being frivolous toward Bathsheba? Doesn't it look like he's kind of being frivolous toward his, the thing with Uriah murdering her husband? But he has this to say, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in your sight. Against thee and thee only. That's the essence of sin when we can see it, yes, we have wronged other people. This is not to minimize the social consequences. Believe me, it's not minimizing the social consequences. Why do I say that? Because what if we just read from chapters 11 through 20? Aren't those the social consequences? You bet. There's t tons of social consequences. We don't have to be reminded of those. Everybody knows those. What we have to be reminded of is that it's between us and the Lord. That's the dimension that we have to be reminded of. Against thee have I sinned. Why have you despised me? All that I've done for you. And it's only when we focus on that, that, as we'll see later, is that we can have confession. The confession isn't confessing we did something wrong. Everybody knows we did something wrong. The confession is to God for what we have done in rebellion against him. That's where the confessing is going on. So, that's one of the great truths which will emerge from this whole David story. And finally, the last few chapters of 2 Samuel deal with a few summary stories that show, after all, the Bible's final conclusion, as in the bottom of page 109 in the notes, God's evaluation of David was he went fully after Jehovah. In spite of everything that happened, all the social consequences of the scandal, God has in 1 Kings 11, given his assessment of this man. He is a messianic leader, and he went wholly after me. doesn't mean sinlessness, 
but it means something else which we'll have to come to grips with in the next week or two. Father, we thank You for this great testimony of Your grace. We thank You for its exposure of our own sin, of Your righteousness and Your justice, and that we reap what we sow. And yet, on the other hand, thankfully, we don't earn a loss of our salvation. And we thank You for this wonderful illustration of the eternal security of the Davidic dynasty over against the jeopardy of the sins of men. And we thank You and we marvel anew at Your grace and at Your restoration. In Christ's name, Amen. Again, for those of you who like some Q&A, we'll be here a little bit afterwards after the break. Yes, Steve. Yes, Steve is bringing up the point that as the law diminishes in visibility, um, the sense of right and wrong, real right and wrong, not just arbitrary rules and regulations. See, the problem in our day, and we never had more laws. I mean, we have more. It's interesting, out at Aberdeen, we get the Federal Times, and you can see a bar graph of the growth or the, the contraction of different parts of the executive branch of government. You know that every branch of government is going down except one. Guess which one is growing? In spite of all the talk about reducing government, the military is going down, the, the education group is going down, the health group is going down, but the, you know the one department that's going like crazy? Justice Department. Now, who does the Justice Department hold? Lawyers. And what do they deal with? Endless, endless regulations. And it's, it, today, I've, I've discussed this with some of the people in the federal government, what we've got is a neo-Phariseeism. We've never had more talk about rules and regulations that are more and that's less meaningful than I've ever seen. And what it amounts to is that our court system and our law system, it's, it's the technicians. It's who gets this or the mechanics of applying the law. And all the mechanics overshadow completely the ethical issues going on. You know, let's get back to basics here. And what Steve's pointing out is as you get away from that and you bury yourself in the regulations that you can't have a conviction of sin. You know, society can't be reminded of that. So there's an there's agenda behind all that. Uh, not that, you know, the people necessarily are deliberately doing it. It's just their spiritual forces that are bringing this about. So as law, in its ethical sense, gets weaker, then it's, it's when we, personally, when we don't live in that context, and then for a non-Christian who just floats around in that environment, it puts them further and further and further away from the gospel. So you have much more of a culture gap. When, when you start talking about Jesus died for your sins, that, that's a meaningless expression. Absolutely meaningless. When I was a non-Christian, I used to go around and I used to see signs that Jesus saves. And it was a crude joke when I was a teenager. What does he say? Green stamps? And, and, I mean, people used to laugh at that. And that's because we had no idea that we had to be saved. 
So it was a meaningless, to me, it was a meaningless statement to say, Jesus saves. Because I didn't know what he saves from. What's my problem that I need him to save me from? So without that, the rest of the gospel is just, it's, it's hot air. So that's why it's so critical that, you know, we think about what the his, history, I always like to approach history because it keeps the argument from being so personal. It's not what we fundies have cooked up in our back rooms or something. Like we're some sort of a theological queer group that just dreams the stuff up. This stuff is rooted back centuries before. Centuries before. And here we have a clear-cut case of what are you talking about? Egypt. Literature of Egypt is known. In any university library you can go and read the literature of Egypt. Everybody knows about Egypt. But isn't it striking that nowhere in all the thousands of pages of Egyptian literature is there a concept of sin? I think that's pretty significant. And it, when we read the Bible, it's there. So then you ask yourself, well, what, what's going on different between Israel and Egypt? Something's going on different. And that, that's the technique you want to use so that when you think through the Scriptures, you, you, don't let, you don't let the world outmaneuver you. That's why you see me in this, in this Thursday night class. I'm going over and over and over. Tonight I did it again. Review these fundamental themes because these are universal themes. It gets back to the fact if you've got the whole, the big picture, it helps you to, com to deal with the little picture. But if you're just sitting here looking like this and you lose the forest for the trees, you get outmaneuvered. Because somebody will come at you or, or a situation will happen, you get oppressed and you get fly off the hand, you get, get your eyes off the big, big, big picture and you just fall flat on your face. So it's good to keep going back to the basics, back to the basics, review and review over and over and over again. It's the only way to do it. And this issue of sin and law comes up in the New Testament, it comes up in the Old Testament, it comes up every day in our lives. So it's something we have to talk to. And it's interesting that only when this happens, here in David's life, we be, it's, it's of all the places in the Scripture, I don't know any place to go in the Bible that is clearer on what it means to confess sin than in David's life. This is the illustration of confession of sin, if there ever was one, in all of Scripture. Yes? On David? That's right. Well, the, the fact of the matter is, the question deals with, does David, how much does David know, how much self-conscious self is David about the connection between what's going on in his life from chapter 11 to 20 and the sentence passed on him by the prophet? And 
I think there's two answers to that, Don. I think one of them is that he must have known, he realized the sin issue pretty early on because he wrote the song as a result of that. So it's quite clear that uh, with, it must have been a period of months at most that he, he had time to think this thing through and got it straight. Now, why the text doesn't say, uh, you know, ding dong, a bell doesn't go off at number two, and ding dong, number three, why isn't it clearer? I think that's part of the way the Holy Spirit preserved history. David might well have thought of this, but remember, this Bible is a selection of material gathered by the prophets under the inspiration of the Spirit. And they seem to be more concerned not so much with a consciousness of what's going on in David's heart. That material appears to be selected to tell us the story of God's behavior in history. The emphasis is, is always on that. For example, the third book of the trilogy, there's three books here that are involved, Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. If you look at, Second King, uh, at Chronicles, there's not a mention of this whole episode. And this episode is instrumental in shaping what happened to his dynasty. And yet Chronicles dispenses with it completely and starts with, a, with the ark coming up and, and what he did for the temple. Because Chronicles is written from the standpoint of how God is building the temple. It to just totally ignores this other stuff. It's just because there's themes, appears to be, the, the Holy Spirit has themes that he pursues. And when he's pursuing this theme, he kind of leaves that one off to the side. Why such a weighty punishment? You you tend to get the, the you tend to get the the image from the text there that David is a messianic leader and he is supposed to be a Christ type. And it appears that, that there are these odd cases, and does right here, where she's talking about these weighty punishments that seem all out of proportion to what went on, like the poor priest that reaches out and touches the ark. I mean, he gets blasted. And now why, does, why does that happen? And the, the only way you can answer it is that the Holy Spirit does that in order to give us a shock, maybe, to get truth across to others, they, I mean, frankly, he uses us in a nice sense. And, and that's how he used that whole episode to teach the whole church down through the centuries of the consequences. Uh, maybe because he was such a central figure, everybody's going to look to David, the original king of kings. And look what he did and look at the consequences. And it's, it's put, and we'll get into this next week, the theme of what the consequences were is set over against the perpetuation of his dynasty. Because woven into those themes that we had time going on from chapter to chapter to chapter, what you would find is like in that last episode with um, uh, Adonijah and Bathsheba, what you noticed was there was messing around going on with a harem. And you noticed that happened with Absalom a little bit. So, when you read the text and the details, what you begin to see is that the rebellion that is coming up through the sons threatens the Davidic covenant. 
Because God's promise is to one and only one boy. And that's Shlomo, Solomon. Just say, well, God's a super chess player. That's all I say. You know? Yeah, yeah. But but the the unfolding of the death of his sons, I kinda I kinda twisted it tonight a little bit because I was trying to get through and just show you the four. But don't let me have given you the wrong impression. Just because I showed you the four deaths tonight of his sons, I didn't mean to rip that out of the context in which those deaths occurred. And my whole point is that if you read the text and we'd gone through it verse by verse, you would have seen that in each case of those four deaths, a dynastic issue was going on. And that's really the story of First and Second Kings. Is the Davidic dynasty going to dissolve? Will it stand up to the political pressures? I mean, at one point later on, Kings, we'll get into this later, is the whole dynasty goes down to one six-year-old kid that's hidden inside the temple. If he dies, the whole Davidic covenant goes down the tubes. And then there's another spin-off. With David's wives, another one of his sons is in Christ's line. Because have you ever noticed that when you come to the New Testament, Jesus has two genealogies? and you go into college class sometime and some smart-out professor will get up and say, ha, 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 contradictions in the scriptures. And then they'll really hurt Christian students who are in the class by drumming them over. See, the Bible is contradictions. How do you explain that one? And some 17-year-old kid's sitting there and they haven't studied the Bible that much. And this guy's, you know, studied for the last 15 years and he just crushes them and destroys them in class. You know, big game. Pick on the Christians. And the two, the two genealogies go back to two of David's sons. Because it then will turn out, here's, here's David and here's Solomon, and his line comes down, and then his line gets cursed down at the end of the king's accounts. So now what do we do? We can't have the Messiah. On the one hand, he has to come from the royal line, but he can't come from that one because that line is cut off. So now we've got a big problem. Jesus has to inherit the royalty through Solomon, but he can't sit on the throne. So the, so the neat way, how did God work it out? Super chess player again. Virgin birth. Mary has the genes of another son of David. So, ha-ha, one again. Because she carries the, carries the Davidic line, so legally Jesus is a Davidic. But he's not of the cursed line. So, yes, wait. Yet I also look at the, the story of Saul. Now, maybe I'm presumptuous, but I, I would assume the person who had the Holy Spirit once upon a time I would, would accept as a, as a Christian or as a believer mm-hmm. uh, and, and inheriting salvation. And yet there's a, there's a big difference in, in the way that uh, they both ended up in, in the temporal world. Right. But if you're, if we're using the, the Davidic example to talk about personal with Saul yeah well very good very good question what Wade's pointed out here is Saul was lost his kingship 
And when he developed that, it was instituted as a conditional kingship. And the Holy Spirit came upon Saul and so on. Saul probably was a believer, but we don't know that. Now the key is that when in the, the text is emphasizing the kingship issue, not their individual salvations. So you gotta, this is how you have to be careful when you read Old Testament theology. And you've got to learn to read Old Testament theology emphasizing what the Old Testament is emphasizing at that point. I'm not going to build personal sanctification off of David as a person. I'm building personal sanctification off of the mechanics of the Davidic covenant. So I'm not limited that way. But you're right. Saul might very well have been a believer. Presumably he was. But in the, in the scheme of the stories, his life is an illustration of something. David's life is an illustration. They play different places on the team. They may be on the same team, but they're playing a theological drama here uh, as God plays with their lives and, and, and illustrates through them. And Saul certainly was an example of the unconditional kingship, the conditional kingship spawned by men. Um, the Spirit left him, and people used that to say, oh, you can lose your salvation, and so all the rest of it. Um, but keep in mind, when it says in the Old Testament, the Spirit comes upon person, that often does not refer to a spiritual thing like in the New Testament. It often refers to what we would say the Spirit. Here's an example. When the temple was made, tabernacle was made in, in Exodus, it says the Spirit came upon the carpenters and they got carpentry skills. Huh? You know, this strikes us as funny because we're so used to reading the New Testament when the Holy Spirit comes up and we think of the Christ life and the ethical and the moral dimension. But when the Spirit came upon men in the Old Testament, he often had a very non-spiritual, uh, physical, social thing. For example, Samson's out of it and the Spirit of God comes upon him and what does he do? It gives him the ability to kill people. Now, I don't know whether he's in fellowship or out of fellowship when it happened, but it sure worked. I mean, he pulled the whole temple of Dagon down. Wiped out a whole bunch of people there. So, the Spirit of God coming upon Samson and the Spirit of God coming on Saul, um, he prophesied. I, I have often taken Saul as a believer. But, but when you read the Old Testament story, I'm not looking at that issue when I'm looking at Saul. That's how I resolve it. These guys may very well have been believers, but they're, they're used, their life stories are used as illustrations of different things. Any other questions? Good questions tonight. Yes? But that's a good, a good point. God, if he's going to do something, he'll find another way to do it. And there are, in his mind, there are thousands of ways that fit his promises. Um, an example of that in the New Testament. Here's a strange one. In the New Testament, Jesus comes up with a very mysterious saying. He says, if you had received John the Baptist, he would have been Elijah. Now try that one on for size. What does he mean by that? Because if the people had accepted the message of John the Baptist as a nation, the Millennial Kingdom would have happened and the prophecy of Elisha coming before the Millennial Kingdom would have had to have happened. So now you've got John the Baptist being Elisha all of a sudden. 
or the spirit of life. So you get into these what ifs. Jesus says later, and, and when he's going to die on the cross, and his disciples are worried about it, and he says, I could ask him, you know, my father, and they'd have 10,000 angels here right now. Legions of angels. Now, what if he had? Now, if the angels had come and defended Jesus, then he wouldn't have died on the cross. And if he didn't die on the cross, he wouldn't have our salvation. See? So, it's, <laughs> this is what happens when you get into this realm of history. And that's why the only way to do it is go back to say, well, what did God promise? And we have to trust him with how he's going to fulfill a promise. Because he has a million ways of doing it. And you're right. If he had not gone up on the roof, then somehow or other, there would be one of his children who would still go on to be king. Okay, that's it. We'll see you next week.